0: Hey, Scott here with Grace Bible Church. Before we get into this message, I just wanted to thank you for streaming this sermon. We pray that each week you are challenged by who God is and what he has done for you. Now, this is never meant to be a substitute for you to be an active member of a community of faith. If you live in the Holidaysburg area or if you're in town for any reason, we encourage you to gather with us on Sunday mornings for our word and worship. You can learn more about what God is doing through our church body on our website, gbclive.org. The title of the sermon today is The Importance of Godly Leaders. The Importance of Godly Leaders. Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, I'll read it in the English Standard Version. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today recognizing who you are, recognizing that you are a holy God, you are a righteous God, you cannot tolerate sin. We recognize our need for the grace that is in the gospel. We recognize our own deficiencies and our own sin. As we open up your word today, I pray that your spirit would use it in a way that encourages our hearts, challenges our hearts, roots out sin that might be camping out there. I pray that you would use these words. They would give me clear thoughts. So this would be helpful for our church and faithful to the text. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So recently in our house, we've been dealing with some sickness. So you know if you've ever been in a house with kids who are sick or you've been around kids who are sick, once one gets it, yeah, they all get it eventually. It's kind of like just waiting for that next shoe to drop. Uh, Jay almost always seems to get some form of something. Sometimes I get it, holding out so far. Uh, But I was thinking about sickness in the context of Uh, Titus chapter one. And, you know, mild sickness. We're probably all familiar with that. You know, snotty noses, cough, sore throat kind of a thing, maybe a headache. Uh, Maybe our bodies are weak. You know, we're not able to do the things that we normally need to do. And we've probably all experienced that. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, severe sickness can bring incredible complications and all kinds of difficulty with it. Uh, and if left unchecked or untreated, some sicknesses are so severe that they could result in death, right? We, we see that that's a reality of the world we live in. Some of you maybe suffer with chronic illness. Uh, you experience kind of on a daily basis, the absence of health, you experience the longing for your body to be able to do what it needs to do. And so you're very aware uh, when that is lacking. So as we we think through sickness, the goal when you're sick is never to stay sick. right? It's always to get healthy again. You always always want to move back to health. The goal is to to get better. We want our bodies to be able to do what we need them to do as much as we can in, in this world that we live in. So today, we're not, we're not talking about physical health, although that's going to be a really good kind of illustration to kind of just log in your mind as we work through this. Today, we're talking about our spiritual health or spiritual body, the health of our church, us as the church. So here's the main idea I want you to see from this text today. And if you, if you want to take notes, you want to jot this down, this is kind of the main idea of our text. This will frame what we talk about. And then a little bit later, I'll give you three points that are kind of uh, headings. You can jot down if you want to see how we're going to track through. So main idea of this text, godly leaders who confront error are essential to the health of the church. All right, godly leaders who confront error are essential to the health of the church. So about six months ago uh, was Titus part two, and we left off kind of in the middle of Paul's thought at the end of verse nine. So that's what we're going to pick back up today. And I'm gonna read verse nine again because it, uh, it's helpful to kind of see how this flows. So Titus chapter one, verse nine, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So what Paul has been doing in verses five through nine of chapter one has been laying out qualifications for elders, right? We talked about that last time. Uh, he's been laying out qualifications for leaders in the church. They must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. That trustworthy word is the gospel and then everything that flows out from that. So the good news kind of shorthand for the gospel, the good news about who God is and what he has done for us. So I want to pause here. I want to be really clear right out of the gate what the gospel is because that's going to it's going to really matter for the rest of this passage and for us to have the right framework. So I sum the gospel up in four words, right? So the good news would be some of them. God, man, Jesus, and then response, right? Who is God? Who are we? Who is Jesus? And then what do we do with that, right? So we're thinking through what is the gospel? We have to know who God is. So God is the righteous creator. He is holy. He has made us in his image to be in relationship with him under his authority. So we're clear on who God is. He cannot tolerate sin. Enter humans, all right? We are the sinners. We wrecked the relationship that we had with God in the garden. We rebelled against God's good authority. So now all humans are sinners by nature, not just by action, right? So every single one of us is a sinner by nature, and we are subject to God's wrath. That's a problem, okay? That is eternal punishment, God's wrath level. So the good news is that there's a rescue from this predicament, and that is Jesus Christ, the Savior. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He came in the flesh. He tabernacled with us so that we would know what God is like, so that he could live a perfect life that we can't ever live. His perfect obedience allowed him to go to the cross as our substitute. He laid down his life, and he took on all of God's wrath so that We do not have to. He bore the wrath that we deserve. He didn't stay dead though, right? He rose from the grave to show that he had conquered death and to give eternal life to his people. So the question then is, what have you done with this news? Have you responded in repentance? When we say repentance, we mean turning from your sin, realizing, man, I am a sinner, right? I'm prideful, I'm selfish, I get bitter. I get angry. Turning from that sin and trusting in the only rescue that can save you from that, and that is Jesus Christ and him alone. Have you done that? And if you haven't done that, there's no more important thing you could do than that today. Respond in repentance and faith to that news. And I want to be clear on that right out of the gate. I implore you, do it right now. Do it today. Turn from your sin. Eternal punishment apart from God is at stake. But the gospel doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? So those of us who have done that, who have turned from our sin and trust in Christ, those of us who gathered around the communion table just a few moments ago, the gospel isn't just a list of four words or a nugget that we're like, okay, yeah, we we know that, right? The gospel moves out into all of life. And so as we think, through that, we realize that our belief in the gospel as Christians shows up in a tangible way. And it looks like godliness. Sometimes I think we're allergic to talking about good works, right? Because rightfully so, we get, we're saved by faith alone, grace alone and Christ alone. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? We're not saved in any way by what we do, by our good works. But flowing from our belief in the gospel should always be good works. Right? So we have to talk about it. We just need to know how it fits. Good works are the fruit when the gospel has taken root in our life. So godliness is gospel-fueled good works. Godliness is good works fueled by the gospel. So, back in Titus part one and part two, kind of sketch out a theme of the whole book of Titus. So, if you would sum Titus up in one sentence, this is what I would say God's grace revealed in the gospel leads to godliness in the lives of his people. All right, theme of Titus, one sentence God's grace revealed in the gospel leads to godliness in the lives of his people. We're going to need that gospel framework for our passage today. We're going to need to understand how that fits. So that's kind of why I want to drop the gospel bomb right in the intro, so we're clear on what that is, and so that we understand there's, there's something we got to respond to, both if we are not Christians and if we are Christians. So that brings us back to verse 9. So verse 9, Paul gave us two reasons, and this is review, but it's important for seeing what happens in verse 10. Paul said there's two reasons elders must hold firm to the gospel, to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict that sound doctrine. The first one is going to be the focus of the next sermon. All right, so part four is is going to be chapter 2. Chapter 2 starts out, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Our passage today focuses on that second responsibility of elders to rebuke those who contradict it. So, what is, what is this sound doctrine thing? All right? Sound doctrine means healthy teaching. It's the gospel and all of life that flows from that, all of the ramifications of the gospel. It's teaching that uplifts and builds up. The church, So the opposite of sound doctrine, then, is unhealthy teaching. Right? So if sound doctrine is healthy teaching, the opposite of that is unhealthy teaching. Teaching that divides and disrupts. Teaching that hurts and burdens the flock. And this was what was going on in Crete. All right? This was the situation. Absent godly leaders, Crete was a mess. Paul's solution for that, we saw in verse 5, was appoint elders in every town. These would be elders who were shaped by the gospel with the responsibility to give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. So in our passage today, which is verses 10 through 16, Paul explains why it's so important that Titus appoint these gospel-shaped leaders. So that brings us back around to our main idea. So I'll remind you of that again if you're taking notes or if you didn't get it the first time. Godly leaders who confront error are essential for the health of the church for three reasons. All right, so here's your three. If you wanna jot these down and, and we'll kind of go through these, these are these will be our, our headings. First reason, godly leaders silence damaging leaders. Number two, godly leaders rebuke unhealthy teaching. And then number three, godly leaders model true godliness. All right, so I'll give you those again. Number one, godly leaders silence damaging leaders. Number two, godly leaders rebuke unhealthy teaching. And then number three, godly leaders model true godliness. So let's take a look at the first one. You'll notice that verse 10 begins with the word for. That's a connecting word. It's wanting us to see what just came before that. And you could, you could translate it as because. So for because. So let's start in verse nine and I'll read right through to verse 10 and you'll see why this matters. So verse nine, he, so the elder, the godly leader must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine also to rebuke those who contradict it. For or because there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those Of the circumcision party. So there are opponents in Crete, and these are opponents of the gospel that must be confronted. Now, if you notice this when we read, there's not just a few of them. There are many of them. So what characteristics do we see here here of the many? Well, there's kind of three primary characteristics. Insubordinate, which would be like rebelling against godly authority, okay? But keep in mind, There's no established authority in the churches yet, in Crete, so it's not like there is godly authority. So these folks are rebelling against the gospel itself. They're rebelling against the apostolic authority of the message of the gospel. That's a problem, all right? Second thing, they're empty talkers. It has the idea of worthless talk, kind of like you would think of with a stone idol. You know, like a stone idol is about good for like propping your door open, that's about it, right? So that, that kind of empty talk. And then the third thing is they're deceivers. They teach what is not true. They lead people to believe things that aren't actually true. And then there's that phrase, especially those of the circumcision party, which is always kind of like a pesky little phrase because no one wants to deal with circumcision, you know, but it shows up all over the New Testament. So we'll deal with that in, part, in, in the second point. So just kind of file that. We'll come back to that. Here's something we need to understand. Those rebelling against the gospel in Crete profess to be Christians. And we see this happen kind of all throughout the New Testament. There's a lot of different places we could go. Uh, Matthew 7, Jesus says in verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, right? They, They look like sheep, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Then he says, you will recognize them by their fruit. We'll need that for later. Paul, talking to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 29 says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And we could, we could list a host of other passages in the New Testament, right? John talks about this. Peter talks about this. Jude talks about this. I cited Paul and Jesus. So this is kind of a big deal that, that false teaching and false truth would come up from within the church. So the point of application here is this. Some of the greatest danger to the church comes from within the church, Now, that's a little bit hard maybe for us to wrap our minds around because we're so used to kind of saying the biggest danger of the church is culture out there, right? But the New Testament would have us see that the biggest danger to the church comes from within because it's truth mixed with error, right? It's actually a lot easier to just be like, okay, that's error. Uh, We know we we can tag that as error. The problem comes when we've got 90% truth and 10% error right? That's a lot harder to see because that, that actually looks pretty good. You know, uh, you know, you get the, the meat from the store that's 90-10, you know, you're like, hey, that's that's pretty good, right? Harder to see, looks more persuasive, perhaps is even attractive. But it's damning because it compromises the gospel. Who helps us watch out for that? Who helps us guard against this error? Paul's saying in this passage, godly leaders. Right? So verse 11, the directive is pretty straightforward. He says, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. That phrase, they must be silenced, has the idea of gagging. So like preventing speech. Like put a gag in somebody so they can't talk. This isn't like, ah, maybe you have like a casual conversation and hopefully try to get them. No, like silence them like prevent them from speaking. Because they were teaching, the text says, what they ought not to teach. And they were doing it for the wrong reason. They were doing it for shameful gain, for dishonest gain, which is in contrast to how the elders should lead, right? In verse 7, we saw that elders should not be greedy for gain. What was happening with these folks was, they were kind of like, ooh, like people like hearing that, like... They gave us a little bit more money there. We should, we should kind of preach that vein of things. We should teach over here because these guys, they got deep pockets. All right, so what was happening there was they already had kind of unofficial influence. Because remember, there wasn't established leaders there yet. What Paul is saying is here, they need to now officially not have influence. So it's kind of like milling around, there's a mess. We need to officially silence these folks. And the reason why is, is clear, right? They were damaging people, damaging relationships. The text says upsetting whole families. The word is households. Remember in the first century, where did the church primarily meet? Households, right? So we're not just talking about like, hey, it caused some trouble for this family. We're talking about this, this, is, this is disrupting the church in Crete. This is disrupting the gatherings of God's people in that place. So apparently Christians were listening to this teaching, in some ways being deceived by it, and maybe even financially endorsing it, contributing to it, saying, hey, yeah, this, 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 we like this. Right? This, this is good. These, these people kind of we were tracking with that. But Paul knows if these damaging leaders aren't silenced, they have the potential to ruin the church in Crete. That's big. I don't know if you listen to podcasts at all. Uh, If you listen to podcasts, maybe you ran across uh, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Um, It's been out for a little while. It's basically long-form journalism on the Mars Hill Church in Seattle, Washington, led by Mark Driscoll, uh, which isn't a church anymore, uh, but they grew to about 15,000 members, 15 campuses kind of a thing. Pretty much uh, imploded overnight, pretty much shut down overnight, did, did birth some, some healthy churches out of that in spite of what was going on there. But if you, if you listen to the podcast at all, you know that, that was a story of spiritual abuse that, that happened because of the lust for power and money and fame and everything that comes with that. And there, were a lot, there was a lot of hurt that happened for the people of Mars Hill, a lot of damage. Here's why I bring it up the gospel was preached at Mars Hill in some ways, very powerfully. Spiritual transformation happened at Mars Hill, like legitimate life change, right? From death to life for people. So much so that people turned a blind eye to the warning signs of the spiritual abuse that was happening of all the damage that the leaders were doing. So much hurt. And I think it's easy to kind of look at that and be like, oh, I mean, I would totally see that coming. I would totally see those warning signs. Would we? I mean, I listen to the podcast and I'm like, man, pe- people were, were, were relationally bought. I mean, they were, they were tight with people. There was relational depth, legitimate work of the Holy Spirit For years, with a backdrop of all kinds of damage happening. So we we know that the spirit is able to work in whatever situation he wants. But let's not think that something like Mars Hill can't happen to us. When the end of spiritual transformation justifies the means of pragmatism, We've, we've already compromised the truth. So, so what I mean by that is if, if the end of seeing people changed by Jesus means we can do whatever we want in the process, as long as we're getting that, we've, we've lost the gospel, okay? Because you don't manufacture spiritual change. I don't manufacture life change. I can't make that happen. Only the spirit of God through the gospel of God can make that happen. We must not give a platform to those who are divisive or those who rebel against godly authority or those who shun accountability. I shouldn't be a leader if I shun accountability. Later on in the letter, and we'll get to this in chapter three when we get there, he says in verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Godly leaders will silence damaging leaders. I, lo- I love hearing the, the baby in here, so don't, don't feel bad. I, lo- I love the, the family feel of that. That was point number one. Point number two, godly leaders will rebuke unhealthy teaching. All right, so we camp out here for a little bit. Reason number two, uh, verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. So in verse 12, Paul quotes one of their own leaders, and we're not exactly sure who it was, and really it doesn't matter for for, for our purposes. The point is, Crete had like a self-recognized bad rap, right? They were like, okay, we're lousy and we know, okay? Like even our own people say about that, which is why they needed Jesus, right? Which is why it was such a big deal that the church be healthy there because they, like us, because we're lousy people without Jesus, okay? They needed Jesus. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, confirms this dude's testimony, whoever this, this Cretan prophet was. He says, this testimony is true. These damaging leaders in Crete were professing to be Christians, but acting like Cretans. They were leading people away from Jesus. And Paul's, Paul's command here is really clear. It's, it's the imperative in the text. It's, it's the, the command with the oomph. And he says, rebuke them sharply. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. So rebuke has the idea of corrective teaching and stern reprimand. Okay, so correction for sure, maybe through teaching, right? Silence those who are false teaching. Teach what is right and correct and, and reprimand where needed. But then he adds that word Sharply. I don't know about you, I already feel like rebuke is a pretty sharp word. I don't walk around too much like throwing the word rebuke around, you know, like it's, like I say, rebuke, that's like, feels pretty sharp. But then he he adds a qualifier and says, not just rebuke, but rebuke sharply. Okay, and that word only shows up one other time in the New Testament. It's in 2 Corinthians 13, and it's where Paul talks about having to be severe with the Corinthians. Okay, we spent a lot of time in Corinthians. We kind of know why Paul needed to be severe there. Same word, okay, has the idea of unpleasantly stern correction. I don't know about you, but that's a little bit hard to, to, to preach. It's hard to, maybe it's hard to receive. I, I don't want to be unpleasantly stern with anybody, okay? I know in, in my flesh I can be, but for Paul to say in a godly way you need to be unpleasantly stern with somebody... That seems pretty serious. That's like, okay, there's a depth of error here that, that needs confronting, and it's going to require an unpleasantly stern manner. But notice, it's not unpleasantly stern to condemn, but to restore. Because If you keep going to verse 13, Paul says, that they may be sound in the faith. So therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, and that word "sound" is where we get the healthy idea. So that, that's a Greek word that means health. So that's why I said sound doctrine is healthy teaching. So it carries the idea of being free from disease, and that that's a medical meta- metaphor that shows up all through the letters to Timothy and Titus. For it's a metaphor for right belief in the gospel. So sound in the faith would be right belief of the gospel that leads to right gospel living godly leaders rebuke sharply for the sake of the gospel for the health of the church and for the person who's going astray right rebuke to restore not rebuke to condemn rebuke to condemn is not godly leadership it's not godly authority that would be abuse of that authority We'll talk a little bit later in 16 about what happens when people don't respond to that rebuke and what what that says about them, but we'll get there. Humility should characterize that. So when Paul says, rebuke them that they may be sound in the faith, them and they, rebuke them that they, it's unclear who that is. So when I was first reading through this, I'm like, oh, he's obviously talking about the false teachers, right? Rebuke them so they may be sound in the faith. And I'm like, okay, wait a second, like when you get to verse 16 and you're like detestable and disobedient and unfit for any good work, that really doesn't sound like someone who's pretty close to being sound in the faith, right? So began to get a little bit, okay, like, and as I looked at the grammatically, we don't know who the, who those words refer to. It could refer to the people who are teaching the wrong stuff. It could refer to the people who are receiving it and being deceived by it, who would also need rebuked so that they don't go astray. So their lives are at stake, right? So it's unclear who that is. But here's why I bring it up. And here's why I think it matters. Paul wants the whole church to be sound in the faith. So whether that unhealthy teaching is coming from someone who's teaching it, or someone who's receiving it, and then believing it and living by it, it all needs rooted out. Right? Paul is like, all of this Junk needs rooted out, whether it's coming from the person teaching it or the person receiving it. Okay, so I think understanding that helps us kind of do a little bit of introspection, right? So pastorally, that's going to look different case to case. But here's a question for you. How will you respond if stern correction comes to you? How will I respond if stern correction comes to me? because as a leader, I'm not exempt of stern correction, right? (laughs) These were leaders in, in Crete that needed stern correction. That's why we have multiple leaders, right? Would we respond defensively or pridefully or would we respond in repentance and humility? How we respond in those moments says a lot about our belief in the gospel. Now I have not, I've not personally experienced cancer, but I know many people have, many of us in here have been affected by it. Certainly have uh, folks in my family have, have experienced it. So, so in my body personally, I've, I've not experienced that. From what I can tell and from walking with people, the treatment process is not pleasant, right? There's a very unpleasant, treatment process that comes with trying to root out cancer. But if you have cancer and it can be treated, you do the unpleasant treatment. Why? It could save your life, right? If you don't do the treatment, you're going to die. So regardless of how unpleasant it is, you endure it because it's for your good. Unhealthy teaching is like spiritual cancer. Disease doctrine is like poison. Godly leaders will rebuke unhealthy teaching so that you'll be sound in the faith. It's for your good. But notice it's not just sound in your faith, like personal faith. I don't know if you notice the wording there. Paul says, so that you might be sound in the faith. So think Sound doctrine, right? The body of truth that comes with the gospel. Jude 3, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Doctrine that's both biblically faithful and useful for life. Sometimes I think when we hear doctrine, we're like, ah, I don't mess with that. Well, how do you live? You mess with doctrine, right? Whatever you live, that's what you believe, right? So we all, we all do doctrine. We just might not call it that. So let's go back to that pesky circumcision phrase back in verse 10 and put that together with verse 14. All right, verse 14 uh, says, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So let's try to put some handles on this unhealthy teaching because, okay, unhealthy teaching, whatever, that's super vague. Let's try to put some handles on this. All right, so we got three phrases here. We got circumcision party, okay? Uh, We got Jewish myths, and we got commands of people who turn away from the truth. All right, so we don't exactly know what the error was, and and I love when that happens because uh, if it was super specific, we'd be like, oh, yeah, get rid of that. That, That's not an issue for us. Uh, It's not super specific. It's vague enough that we can actually draw a really broad application for us from it. So we know the circumcision crew, every time they show up, That means there's some kind of Jewish background thing going on here, right? So think of it like Jesus plus circumcision. It's like you need circumcision as part of your Christianity, right? So we're not going to get into a biological lesson today. I'll spare you that. But the point being, you were adding something to what it meant to be a Christian, right? And so... Probably not just that either, because you throw in some Jewish myths, who knows what else kind of was floating around that was kind of be the benchmark for being godly. Uh, But it kind of summed up in that phrase, commands of people who have turned away from the truth. So another way to say that would be merely human commands. And I didn't realize this until I looked at it this week. That's a technical term that's used kind of across the scriptures to refer to Commands that are meant to replace what God requires. Okay, so basically commands that subvert what God requires and confuse the truth. So Jesus uses this term in Mark chapter seven, and he's quoting from Isaiah 29. He says this, maybe one that you recognize. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's that's that technical term. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. So that's serious. And then Paul echoes the same term in Colossians 2. So if you've never read Colossians 2, that really is like a whole treatise on dealing with adding stuff to the gospel, right? And so in, in verse 22, he uses that same technical term to refer to human precepts and teachings. So the point here is, these are not things that God requires. Here's how I sum it up. Unhealthy teaching here is teaching that leads us away from Jesus rather than to Jesus. Additions that obscure. In a word, legalism. Okay? Okay? So let's talk about this a little bit. Do you know what can lead us away from Jesus? Okay, I just made a list. Money, work, marriage, sex, kids, stuff. You can put more stuff on that list. I just picked some stuff. Do you know what can lead us to Jesus? Money, work, marriage, sex, Kids, stuff. Uh Uh-oh. How do we know? It means we can't check boxes to know if we're healthy Christians. You're not going to be able to tell just by who shows up here on Sundays. Healthy Christians will show up here on Sundays, but showing up is not a guarantee of health. You're not going to be able to tell based on whether or not you have a drink when you go out with your friends. So in Galatians 2, Paul confronts Peter. It's a fascinating passage. I read verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Ooh, that sounds familiar. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Apparently Barnabas was never led astray, but he was here. And then verse 14, and i hone in on this. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, which is Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Verse 11, we didn't read, but it says Paul opposed him to his face. Like mean, just picture Paul like, getting up in Peter's face like, this is serious, man. But notice Paul's not saying it's a behavior problem. He's saying it's a belief problem. He said, your conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. Yeah, but I believe that Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again. Yeah, but your action doesn't line up with godliness that flows from the gospel. You see, Peter, he checked the don't upset the circumcision party box. Oh, circumcision party's here. Okay, we don't want to like, you know, okay, like, well, check that box. But in so doing, he was in danger of losing the gospel. That, it's not just like, okay, you need to kind of rework. Like, no, no, you're compromising the gospel by what you're doing. So you need to change your belief In order to change what you do, you've forgotten the truth that comes with the gospel. There was a disconnect and that's what legalism does. All right, so in his book, Titus For You, which I would commend to you, it's a very short read. uh, Tim Chester is on point when he says this, laws and rules that look as if they are about promoting and protecting godliness are actually about limiting godliness. Because then godliness is determined by how well we do at that particular set of rules. Right? Meanwhile, we're ignoring the rest of our lives. We're, a, like, we're checking these boxes, but what about all this? So practically speaking, this means we could consider ourselves to be godly because we gather with the church and we read our Bibles. Meanwhile, we're cheating on our hours at work. We don't. We don't see an issue with that because, you know, that's, we're checking the, the church box and the Bible box. The work thing is different. That, that's kind of how we justify that. Or in my case, I'm godly because I, I don't drink alcohol, even though I consistently lose my temper with my kids. Right? You see how that, that legalism creates that box over here that says, oh yeah, you're good. You're angry at your kids every day. That's sin. That's continual sin. Right? So legalism clouds that. Chester says this. This is so good. All right? The irony is this. And this is what's happening in Crete. When we react against some aspects of our culture and we set up rules to protect ourselves from them, we ignore other ungodly aspects of that same culture we limit the demands of godliness, reducing it from becoming Christ-like to becoming a little less like our culture in a few ways. What a poor trade-off, guys. Rather than getting Christ-likeness in all of life, we get moralism in a couple areas, and we call that godliness. The gospel is at stake there. The gospel doesn't lead us to check a couple of boxes. It leads us to godliness in all of life. Let me illustrate this a little bit. We have a lot of conversations about video games in our house. All right? Uh, Apex Legends is the current fan favorite. I don't know if you know what that is. If you don't know what that is, I just learned how to play it last week. So my boys taught me. If they're watching at home, they... I really enjoyed that, uh, realized I'm really bad at it. Okay. I'm not, I enjoy video games, but I'm, I'm not skilled in any way. Uh, so we have a lot of conversations around that and they're good conversations. Uh, but a lot of our conversations center around what's this doing in your heart, right? Like, you know, when we say you've been on for 87 hours and you got to get off and you're like, throw a fit. Uh, Okay. What's happening in your heart there, right? Obviously, I'm exaggerating to protect the innocent. Um, So here's what you could say, right? I'm going to create a video game box and I'm going to say video games are addictive and they promote laziness and so they're bad. So I don't play video games. Check the box. What would Paul say to that? He would say, eh, that's wrong. And I think Jesus would also say that. Jesus would say the video game isn't the problem. It's your heart that's the problem, right? Jesus in in that uh, Mark 7 passage, he says, you're not defiled by what goes into you, as in, things that you eat or stuff that you do, you're defiled by what comes out of your heart, right? So in, in terms of the video game, uh, could be good, could be bad, might change from day to day, right? If that video game is drawing out selfishness or pride or bitterness or anger or whatever, that's a revealer of the heart. That's why I say it's good conversations in our house, because that tells me what's going on in, in, in their hearts. And that happens for all of us, right? But the point would be if we just check the, the video game box, I don't know what's going on in your heart. Legalism creates a box and says you're godly because you don't play video games for illustration's sake. Okay, I check that box. You're like, I don't even like video games. That's an easy box to check. The gospel leads us to say we're godly because we realize that Jesus is more satisfying than any video game we could ever play. And you can see how you could extrapolate that out to any area of your life. That's the switch. Legalism says you should not do that thing. The gospel says you need not do that thing. Because Jesus is better than whatever that thing is promising you. And, guys, that's really good news. Because some of that stuff looks really good. And, you know, we can even get to, like, judge other people by our boxes, you know. But in reality, the gospel leads us to say, Jesus is better than any box I could ever check. Titus 2.12, Paul actually says, Jesus is the grace that appears, that leads us to godliness. Grace teaches us to say no to sin, not legalism, not rules. Grace in the gospel is the fuel for godliness. Remember I said godliness is gospel-fueled good works. Legalism is a substitute fuel. That's like putting water in your gas tank because gas is too expensive. It's cheaper. I promise you, you will not get to your destination. (laughs) Legalism can't get you to godliness. Only the gospel can do that. Godly leaders will rebuke unhealthy teaching. Point three, it's 12.03, hang with me. Point three is not as long as point two. That's just so you don't worry. Point three, godly leaders model true godliness, which would be over against what the false leaders are doing. So look at verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciousness are defiled. I read that and I'm like, man, that's super confusing. Uh, But then you dig a little deeper and you see that Paul's using pure or clean in two different ways. This is ritual and moral. So basically what he's saying is all things are ritually clean for those who are morally clean. You know, the whole food stuff and all that kind of went away with the law, right? Jesus abolished that. He, He fulfilled the law perfectly. There's nothing, again, Mark 7, nothing that defiles us that we eat or that we drink. But that was in contrast to what they were saying here in Crete. Right? They were saying, okay, you've been saved by the gospel, but you still need to be ritually clean over here. You still need to check these boxes. You know, the whole circumcision thing, okay, Like you got to check that box. But to those who are morally defiled, so Paul's response to that, those who have not been rescued by the grace of the gospel, who have not turned from their sin, there's no way for you to be clean. You do all the rituals you want. There's no cleanliness coming from that. They were all the way defiled. And that brings us to verse 16, which is just, it lands with a thud. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So these false teachers are claiming to be Christians. Detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work, not the Christian resume. If the main theme of Titus is that God's grace revealed in the gospel leads to godliness in the lives of his people, this was not that. (laughs) Rather than gospel-fueled good works, these people were not fit for any good work. There's no godliness here, which meant there was no belief in the gospel. And really, verse 16 acts as the hinge for the whole letter. So Paul's established a need for leaders in the beginning of chapter 1. He's established like the serious problem in Crete. And then in verse 16, he lands on this issue. These people are actually saying you could believe the gospel and then not live like you believe the gospel. Paul say no. In fact, he's going to spend the rest of the letter saying gospel belief will lead to obedience. Gospel belief will lead to godliness. If it doesn't, it's not gospel belief. He's going to say some strong stuff later in the letter. I talk a lot about the difference between confessional belief and functional belief. We can confess something. I think this is true. I believe this is true. Functionally, how do we live? Paul Tripp says, the truths you actually believe are the truths that you live. That's why I said everybody does doctrine. Truth not lived is truth not believed. You cannot profess to know God and then deny him by what you do. That's anti-gospel. We cannot be a church that says we believe the gospel and then not have godliness show up in our relationships with each other. We need to quickly repent when we see that happening. Cause we're, we're gonna wrong each other. There's no doubt about that. We're a family, right? We're humans. We need to quickly repent when that's pointed out to us or when the spirit points that out to us. And godly leaders help us here because they model true godliness rather than counterfeit legalistic box checking godliness. Leaders show us the way. And we all need models of godliness to follow. And that's really what Titus 2 is going to be all about. That's going to be part four. Godly leaders who confront error are essential for the health of the church. Godly, gospel-shaped, right? Leaders, plural, not just one. Who confront error, not passively stand by, help the church grow in godliness, which glorifies God. God, let's pray.